Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. June's vote for the UK to leave the European Union has created enormous issues across society in a wide variety of arenas. But perhaps no section of society faces as many big questions and challenges about Brexit than farming. For years, farmers have been given substantial subsidies under the Common Agricultural Policy, currently amounting to about £3 billion per year. Moreover, many farmers have become reliant on the use of seasonal workers, mainly from Eastern Europe, to both plant and harvest crops. So what does Brexit mean for British agriculture? More broadly, what will it mean for the ability of the UK to feed itself in the future? This is the topic of a debate at this year's Battle of Ideas Festival, and I'm delighted that one of the panellists in that debate, Guy Smith, Vice President of the National Farmers Union, has found the time to discuss it today. Uh, what was your reaction to the Brexit vote and the reaction of your members more broadly? A short intake of breath, I suppose. I mean, irrespective of how we voted, and we know farmers were a little bit split on this. We think two-thirds were voting to remain and a third wanted to come out. But I think irrespective of how we voted, um, most of us felt a little bit disconcerted, realised this was a brand-new chapter about to open up for Mm. our industry. So I think farmers now recognise that it's done. Uh, It's most unlikely to be revisited. We are going to leave the European Union, um, but this will be a, a long phase and there'll be a lot of politics between then and now. So the common agricultural policy uh, is, as you said, the main policy of the European Union. It's 45% or thereabouts of the European Union's budget. So whereas education and NHS in this country would be financed and administered totally internally, farming fell under the auspices of the European Union. And so as we come out of the European Union, for the first time since 1970, we're going to have to devise our own agricultural policy in this country. And the question farmers have, I suppose, is, uh, well, what does that mean for my industry? How is life going to change? Uh, Should I second guess this and try and sort my business out accordingly and so there's a lot of uncertainty but I think as an industry we see it as opportunity this is an opportunity to build a stronger more vibrant industry going forward and we're determined to make the most of that opportunity there's been a sort of one one of the things that of uh, the puzzle post-brexit debate is one or two fairly sniping articles in the press about farming I mean the probably the most high profile was one by Emma Duncan in the in the Times. Now, Emma Duncan was uh, somebody who was uh, arguing for a Remain, but she she kind of describes um, getting out of the common agricultural policies as as a silver lining in her post Brexit claim. She says the only losers will be the farmers. Their revenues will decline and their asset prices fall. And in the absence of migrants from the EU, they won't have any workers either. Since a poll in Farmers Weekly just before the vote suggested 58% were leavers and 31% remainers, and I'm still in the angry phase of mourning, this does not trouble me. These genetically modified turkeys voted for Christmas. So not the most generous of attitudes, but is there any truth in the idea that you know, farmers have been living off the backs of taxpayers and uh, you know, exploiting workers? Well, you know, I don't want to be disparaging about Emma Duncan. I don't know the lady, but uh, I say junk journalism is the best way I'd respond to that sort of nonsense. You know, genetically modified turkeys, ha ha. I think we can do a bit better than that, can't we? Look, not to sort of overlay at this point, but I think we need to look at history. I think throughout history, pharaohs, emperors, kings.
king's governments have always taken interest in farmers. And why? Because they rely on them to provide a food source for their population. And the rulers, the governments are always very conscious that hungry citizens are angry citizens who are taken to riot in the street and overthrow their rulers. So, and the classic uh, biblical the, um, illustration of this is in Exodus, where Joseph, the son of Abraham, uh, advises the Pharaoh that he needs to be aware that just because they've had one good harvest, it doesn't mean to say that the next harvest will be as good. And so the, it was seven years feast and seven years famine. And his wise counsel to the Pharaoh was to intervene in markets, to buy grain from the farmers uh, when it was in plentiful supply, put it into store, and then they would be prepared for times of shortage. And that was seen to be good government, and it probably kept the pharaoh on his throne because it kept people fed. And you can bring that right up to date. In many ways, the Arab Spring, which, as we know, is causing so much carnage across the Middle East now, and I, you know, I recognise this. Is, there are many reasons for this, but if you trace back to what triggered the Arab Spring, you can point to bread riots in Tunisia in the spring of 2012. And you can argue again, you know, people, that, that was a year when harvests were thin and poor across the world, including in this country, but mainly in America. And flour prices rose, bread prices rose. And in less developed economies like Tunisia, people got very angry and took to the streets. And so throughout history, civilizations have always had an interest in what agriculture is about because they feel that they must politically through policy secure a reliable source of wholesome food for the people. Now at times in this country particularly from the period 1848 the repeal of the Corn Laws to 1939 the outbreak of the First World War the view of the political classes was that Britain was a trading nation it was a factory of the world it was industrial power and they didn't need to worry really about how much food the home producers produced uh, because they could always buy it from somewhere else. Now you could say, and I suspect this is a school that Mrs Duncan is from, although I don't think she expresses it very well, uh, is that never mind about whether our own farmers are producing enough food, we can always buy it from somewhere else. Now, I would argue that you could say that is a little bit of a cavalier, reckless policy in such times, because I would argue you cannot take that food supply for granted looking forward because of things like climate change, which is upsetting our food production cycles. You could say that politically the world is becoming more volatile. Uh, and of course we have an exponentially rising human population trying to get a food source out of a planet that appears to be in an interesting phase in its history. And I would argue that if, because of our movement away from the European Union, we decide to develop a policy where we become dependent on third countries for our food, that is taking a big risk. And just as we would argue, and we do argue now, that Britain shouldn't be dependent on countries like Russia or China or the Middle East for its energy source, I would argue that it would be equally reckless to be dependent on third parties for our food source to a certain extent. So 
what kind of policies do you think are required to guarantee that and how much of our food do we do you think is a kind of minimum that we should produce ourselves i mean it's not much more than half at the moment is it that's right um, we, we've lost a lot of ground on our self-sufficiency uh, you know, since the last sort of 20 30 years we used to be 80 percent self-sufficient so just to um, talk to the history just a little bit more so in 1939 we found that we were 80 percent dependent on imports for our food needs and strategically we were very vulnerable and hitler recognized this and his view was that he wouldn't worry about beating us on the battlefield he'd go and fight the russians and he'd starve the british into defeat and he got quite close to it but then government having ignored their farmers for many decades suddenly got interested and brought in policies like paying farmers to plough up old grassland to produce food guaranteeing them prices because you must remember that when a farmer places a seed in the ground it's a bit of a speculation because if he can't be sure what the results of that seeding will be 12 months later he may not have the confidence to place the seed in the ground in the first place so by guaranteeing prices what our government did was encourage a huge renaissance of food production in 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 the uk and we became 60 percent uh dependent on it on imports but producing 40 percent of our own food needs and that strategically was important and we managed to bring enough across the atlantic to, to carry on feeding us and after 1945, governments decided that this policy of trying to produce more from our own resources was a sound one. And the socialist government of Clement Attlee, and you don't always think of Labour governments as being the best friend of farmers, but they, continued, they agreed with the National Farmers Union to bring in a policy that would guarantee prices for farmers and keep them in business, keep them producing, and start producing from our own resources. Now... I, at this moment in time, I don't think we should say, you know, we should be 75% self-sufficient in our food needs. That sounds a bit Soviet, a bit command economy. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we live in a, a, a trading liberal um, society uh, and that is the un, what underpins our government. However, I would argue that now we're down to 60% self-sufficiency if bad policy brought in to, from London, now we have left... Brussels and the European Union, if those policies uh, increased imports, that I would say that that is a fail and politicians would need to think again. So there are a number of things they can now do. So our politicians now have to go out, now we've left the European Union, and negotiate new trade relations. Now it may be, by way of illustration, they decide to go and talk about trade with Brazil. And it may be that our financial services sector say to government come on let's get us markets into brazil they're really lucrative they'll be good for the country this will be great and they might say and of course if the quid pro quo in those trade negotiations is we give brazilian beef farmers access to uk markets does it really matter because financial services are more important than food the problem i think farmers would have then would be that Brazilians have lower costs of production for many reasons, but one key reason is they're allowed to use hormones in their beef production. And that makes them produce beef, or allows them to produce beef cheaper. Hormones in the United Kingdom are banned because there's deemed to be human health issues. And we would argue that it would be hypocritical and wrong 
to allow Brazilian beef farmers access to our markets while it's known that because of different regulation and lighter regulation they have lower costs of production. What it would do is it would probably destroy our beef industry and make us dependent on Brazil for our beef. And I think it's valid for us to say that that's wrong. And it's valid for us to say that Emma Duncan and her wish for cheap food scoured from wherever she can find it across the world, produced to the lowest, poorest standards, is not a very ethical thing to say. If we're going to open up to the world... Then we, at the very least, we have to have a level, level playing field of, in, in terms of, of the production. It, it, more broadly, I mean, regular headlines uh, and discussion about the state of British farming today. I mean, last year it was uh, milk prices, uh, and uh, there is a sort of general sense that many farmers struggle. That you know, I've been, I stayed at a B and B on a farm and talked to the farmer there, and couldn't possibly continue without doing some extracurricular activities to kind of keep the the, sh- the show on the roads sure. so what so what is the sort of general state of british farming today well farming tends to go through cycles where prices go up and down uh, and at the moment prices are very volatile and we're in a bit of a trough particularly for dairy farmers uh, and for arable farmers that produce wheat and barley for beer and the like um, and most of those farmers, without an element of support payment, which at the moment comes from the European Union, um, without that they would not have viable businesses. So they are dependent on that. Now, it may be that if we have a, a drought um, somewhere in America like we did in 2012, then there will be shortages again uh, and the price will go up and farmers will be in a more comfortable place. But can I just take you back to Joseph and the pharaoh? The point is that although prices are low at the moment uh, and farmers are struggling and we have plenty of food, two years' time there may be a sequence of droughts in parts of the world and suddenly the world's short of food again. Now, if the reaction of the farmer now to poor prices is, well, why bother, I'll stop farming, in two years' time that could become a problem not for the farmer but for the consumer because if the farmer's out the game, then suddenly the food supply um, has become um, imperiled or, or, or not there. Um, so just like the pharaoh bought grain off the farmer, which would have artificially raised the price, you could argue that if you give your farmers support from the state, it keeps them in business and it makes sure that they're there when you, when you need the food. And when the farmer needs the support, it keeps him going. But I agree, this is, you know, about policy and about economics and about politics. And it would be wrong for me to say that it's about black and white, right and wrong. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Are there any real opportunities, obvious opportunities, that Brexit throws up? I mean, we talked earlier about um, welfare standards. Does this open up the possibility of lighter regulation for farmers in certain ways that... Uh, gold plating that's come from the EU that maybe now we can ditch that aren't appropriate to British conditions? Yes, you could say that because if we bring things back home we are more masters of our own destiny which was of course one of the biggest cries uh, of of the Brexit camp uh, that we would no longer have to try and govern ourselves in amongst a a 27 other 
nations. And another weakness of the common agricultural policy was that it tried to be common across Europe. And Europe is a very different place from southern Spain up into Finland. And the farming is very different. So to have one common policy there, you know, wasn't an easy thing to pull off. Although you could argue it was successful because Europe's never been hungry since that policy was introduced. Uh, and Britain, you could say, is, is more homogenous and therefore it will be easy to have an agricultural policy. But, you know, whether or not British farmers will suddenly be free of the shackles of regulation, uh, I'm not sure. And, I, you know, I'll give you, go back to animal welfare. The British, above all the nations in the world, tend a very heightened notion of what good animal welfare is. And they have very high expectations of their farmers about the way they can keep animals. So, for instance, for a pig farmer, um, when he farrows a pig, you know, he has to let the pig have natural light and movement and the like, whereas his competitor, probably in Eastern Europe, puts the pig in a clamp and it's deemed to be cruel in this country and not allowed. Now, if the British continue to want to have their farmers to have high welfare uh, and push the politicians to pass laws to make sure we do... At the same time, they must be aware that that increases our costs of production. And if we're not in some way protected from those farmers that don't have this animal welfare regulation, then you will simply wipe the pig farming business out of Britain and it will go to some, another place in the world where they can do it cheaper. Many different possibilities uh, arise um, in this, but I think that that was a very good warm-up for uh, our debate in at the Battle of Ideas. Uh, thank you very much, Guy Smith from the NFU. Guy will be a panellist in the Battle of Ideas debate How Will We Feed Britain After Brexit on Saturday the 22nd of October at 4pm. For full details of that debate and all the others that are going on over the festival weekend, go to battleofideas.org.uk. For information about our podcasts, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.